Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Today, we are going to talk about what it, what the word translation means in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, the word translation in Mormonism has a certain meaning. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Within Mormonism... The word translation is used to describe what Joseph Smith is doing in the church, which is to take ancient documents and to translate them from an ancient language into a, uh, a modern English using the gift and power of God. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Another example of how the, we in Mormonism use the word uh, translation is Joseph Smith taking the Bible uh, as we have it in English, and Joseph, by the gift and power of God, sitting with that text and, and asking God, like, what's missing? What's got, what's got corrupted? What's gotten diluted? What's gotten removed and what's gotten added? And will you help me restore the, the better understanding of this text by helping me restore the ancient concepts that used to be there in their purity that no longer are there uh, through these other translations that have happened over time? Help me to restore a more pure version of the Bible through this translation method by the gift and power of God. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. So today, what I want to do is go through each of the productions of Joseph Smith. There's five. Uh, if there's a different one, or there's some other one I'm missing, let me know. But I think I've got this narrowed down to the five translation productions uh, of Joseph Smith four of which make up uh, a big part of our canon. Uh, I don't include here the Doctrine and Covenants because that doesn't seem to be uh, a, a collection of any kind of translation, but rather the modern revelations of God to Joseph Smith having nothing to do with any other ancient text. But the other five here uh, will, and four of them are in our canon and then one outside of it. I want to work backwards 
so that we can grasp kind of working from the outside source, the outside production, uh, all the way back to the Book of Mormon. And so I want to start with the Kinderhook Plates. And, it, and the Kinderhook Plates is an interesting story. It's a fun story to kind of read about. I remember when I was investigating the church and, uh, and coming across this story of the Kinderhook Plates and, and then sometime later reading in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism and chasing down other sources and trying to kind of figure out what was going on there. In 1843, some non-members of the church get some members of the church and they do this, uh, they dig into the earth to try and, I don't know if they're digging a well or if they're trying to look for something, but what happens is they get several feet down and they find these really small bell-shaped plates that are connected together. And these plates look ancient. And, uh, and so the, the members of the church who are involved in this digging, they say, look, man, look at this incredible thing we've all found. We have a prophet, Joseph Smith, who's translated plates in the past. Let's take these plates to him and let's see what he can make of them. And they take the plates to Joseph Smith. And William Clayton, who is uh, Joseph Smith's private secretary, and William Clayton, by the way, is a super interesting figure in Mormonism. There's four Williams that at some point I'd love to have a conversation uh, through the podcast about. But there's William Clayton, William Law, uh, William McClellan, and William Marks. And those four Williams play huge roles within our church's history. But William Clayton is a, is a good guy. He's a member of the church. He goes out west after Joseph Smith dies with Brigham Young um, to settle Utah. Uh, he is uh, he's loyal to the church, uh, but, but there's some times where he is also struggling a little bit with the way in which the church does things, but he remains loyal. Um, Smith's private secretary, William Clayton, recorded that upon receiving the plates, Smith sent for his Hebrew Bible and lexicon. On the 1st of May, Clayton wrote in his journal, I have seen six brass plates covered with ancient characters of language containing from 30 to 40 on each side of the plates. President Joseph Smith has translated a portion and says they contain the history of the person with whom they were found, and he was a descendant of Ham, through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and that he received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth. The, uh, the, the history of the church also has a, a statement in there about these. The history of the church is a multi-volume set. I think it's seven volumes in an index or six volumes in an index. I, uh, I have a soft cover copy of this set. I ordered these early on in the church and read through them. It's fascinating. It's the day-to-day operations. You should know as a as a tangent here to go off in, you should know that not everything that's put into the mouth of Joseph Smith in those works comes from Joseph. There are times where Brigham Young and others are suggesting or making edits uh, to place into these volumes words that they want the reader to see as being said by Joseph Smith, but is not the actual written uh, words on the documents that make up this collection. In other words, there's some liberal editing going on, and perhaps Joseph said those things, and they just weren't written down by the scribe, and these these later editors are saying, yeah, but he said this, and we got to add it in, or they're putting words in Joseph's mouth that he never said, but which they feel at uh, at liberty to go ahead and add. 
in this case, though, that really isn't a fair argument. And the apologists I've, I've seen in places where the apologetic argument is that William Clayton or others are putting words into Joseph Smith's mouth that he, he may have never even translated any of this. And I just don't think that's fair. I think when you take in all the data, the Kinderhook story, and we're not going to explore that because that's not the purpose of this podcast. But when you take in all the details of the Kinderhook story, it becomes pretty apparent that Joseph got a few sentences in on the translation. Now, here's the problem. In 1879, the non-members involved in this digging admit that this whole thing was a scam, that they had created the plates, they had um, put them through some process with acid in order to make them look deeply deteriorated by age, uh, but in reality, these are a modern creation contemporary to Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith, on some level, fell for the scam at least a couple of sentences in. After that couple of sentences in, for whatever reason, Joseph Smith um, ceases to try and translate these any further, or at least doesn't translate these any further. And so we're left to try and figure out what's going on here. But we at least need to set the, the stage by saying we have to acknowledge that the Kinderhook plates were not an ancient text and that Joseph, for at least two sentences, is fooled and attempts to translate them. So in this instance, the idea that what translation means within Mormonism is not what is happening here with the Kinderhook plates. The second example, we have to go back to 1835. Now, this is interesting, right? In between the the book of Abraham and the Kinderhook plates is this long stretch of time we have from 1835 to 1843. So all of Joseph's scriptural translation productions occur from essentially 1830 to 1835. And the 1835, which is the next most recent production, is the Book of Abraham. And the Book of Abraham involves uh, Joseph is, I believe, in Kirtland at this time, and uh, a Michael Chandler, if I remember right. I'm pulling this all off my head. I'm not really looking these up. Again, the details of these stories are super interesting. I encourage everybody to go read about these things. But each one of these is their own, you know, one hour, one hour and a half podcast. But in 1835, a guy by the name of Michael Chandler comes through Kirtland. He's got some mummies. He's got some um, papyri scrolls that were with these mummies. And he's putting them on exhibit as he travels around place to place. Well, when he gets to Kirtland, Joseph Smith expresses interest in the papyri and the mummies as well. And uh, he ask the church to collectively purchase this stuff so that he can take a deeper look at it. The church does that. So the papyri and the mummies are purchased, um, at least some of the artifacts. And Joseph Smith then tells us that when he has time to look at this papyri, that these are the writings of Abraham written by his own hand. And these writings contain facsimiles, which is... Um, basically artwork. A In this circle would be multiple depictions of events going on. And Joseph translates both the papyri text 
as well as the facsimiles. And this then becomes what we know today as the book of Abraham. The, the trouble is that as Joseph is doing this here in Kirtland, Ohio, little to his knowledge is that the Rosetta Stone is this big discovery that's happening. And what the Rosetta Stone essentially does is for the first time in, in human history, in modern human history, we humans get to um, connect the dots on how to translate Egyptian. And as soon as Egyptian is able to be translated, we would now have the ability to look at this papyri uh, and as well as these facsimiles and to figure out what exactly is being said on these documents. Now again, Joseph is imposing. This is the writings of Abraham written by his own hand. These papyri scrolls are believed to have been uh, lost they were last understood to be at the Chicago Museum, but in 1871 was the Great Chicago Fire, and the Great in the in the Chica in the Great Chicago Fire, the museum itself was destroyed, and we believed that the papyri was destroyed with it. But then, in the 1900s, uh, mid 1900s, um, another museum, and I don't know off the top of my head, but another museum comes across the Book of Abraham text and realizes that this text uh, is connected to Mormonism and reaches out to the church and offers to sell it to them um, so that the church can have possession of this papyri. The trouble is that once this papyri now is back out in the public eye, Egyptologists can look at it. And here's what we know. And the church offers uh, solutions, but but the solutions don't work. And, and basically, here's why. We know now that the papyri is just a standard uh, funerary text. That in Egypt, these Egyptian kings would have placed with them in their tombs, their catacombs, with, with them as mummies. And this would be, these um, funerary texts would depict in their own Egyptian theology, the journey to the, to, the other, to the afterlife and would depict what their gods were doing and saying and teaching. And what we know is that these texts are unconnected to Abraham. They're, they have nothing to do with Abraham. They're just a standard funerary text that are placed when uh, these Egyptian folks are buried it's, it's like burying your, your Catholic mother with her rosary. It was a standard thing that was placed into their tombs. It was there to help guide them into the afterlife. It was there as a, as a, like a memento or a, a sacred thing to, to set with your deceased loved one and to help them on their journey. We, we know for a fact that Joseph Smith translates the facsimiles dead wrong. Uh, apologists like to point to two possible uh, bullseyes that Joseph Smith got, but when you understand all of the errors and misses and wrong translations involved and what's going on with the two proposed hits, you realize very quickly that those two are just coincidence. So 
Joseph translates the facsimiles wrong. We also have other documents that Joseph's working with as he's doing the Book of Abraham translation. So we can see the symbols and we can see the English words he's attributing to those symbols. So we know that the portion of the papyri that we now have is the same portion that Joseph is working with and translating from. Joseph gets the translation dead wrong. Egyptologists now know what this papyri actually says, and it has zilch to do with the book of Abraham or with Abraham uh, or with any of his history. One of the things the church proposes is that Joseph in some way was permitted by God to deceive himself, that he thought that the papyri was the book of Abraham. God didn't correct him, but instead allowed him to have faith in such a thing and then gave him this inspired text uh, through the mode of translation. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. We now know in 2018 where some of the concepts of Joseph's Book of Abraham come from. In other words, we can now, with some level of confidence, point to other sources, biblical, uh, contemporary, otherwise, where Joseph is getting some of the concepts that he is then placing into the Book of Abraham. And we also know with confidence that Whatever the papyri and the facsimiles are, in fact, we know what they are, what they are has zero connection to the, the text that Joseph produces. And so we begin to see that what Joseph Smith claims to be doing with the kinderhook plates and what Joseph Smith claims to be doing with the book of Abraham is not what is actually happening and this becomes a pattern. And it's important to understand this. Again, whatever the book of Abraham is, it's not what Joseph Smith said it was. Whatever the kinderhook plates were, it's not what Joseph Smith said it was. So then we move back to uh, the Joseph's uh, inspired translation of the Bible. And Joseph is working on that uh, from 1830 to 1833. I don't think it gets published till like 1844. But he's working on it from 1830 to 1833. And what Joseph um, implies that he's doing, as well as what the church has told us for 200 years, is that Joseph Smith is restoring ancient concepts uh, that have been lost. In other words, the original writers of the Bible receive revelation from God, and they put that revelation um, from some type of pen to paper. And the message is what God wants the people to hear. Along the way, other people, either out of good intention or negative motives, take those writings and distort them. They remove things, they add things, they water down things, they make things more rigid than what God imposed, they mistranslate things. And so then Joseph Smith, from 1830 to 1833, sits down with the Bible and works to restore those writings to their original capacity, to their original meaning, giving us a much clearer understanding of what the original authors intended. And that sounds all well and good if 
That's the kind of translation that Joseph Smith is doing. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. No, no, it doesn't. That's the point of this episode. The word translation doesn't mean what we think it means. We now know in 2018, because of the work of Thomas Wayment and Haley Lamont uh, in their uh, work at BYU, that as they sat down to look at the Joseph Smith translation, it became obvious rather quickly that Joseph Smith uh, plagiarized or directly borrowed, and we can debate those words and what they mean in terms of uh, whether something immoral or unethical was done. But what we cannot argue is that Joseph Smith is directly borrowing from a contemporary biblical analysis called Clark's Commentary, as well as other things too. It's just the, the largest extent comes from Clark's Commentary. But Joseph Smith is directly borrowing, taking exact ideas, no ifs, ands, or buts. It's not that the two of them were simply um, drinking from the same well. Rather, it is obvious that Joseph Smith is taking Clark's commentary and taking concepts and at times exact wording out of it and placing it into his inspired translation of the Bible. In other words, Joseph Smith takes the Bible and makes some changes where ancient concepts are being restored. But rather than ancient concepts, what really is being placed in there is contemporary ideas that Joseph Smith is attracted to that he finds in Clark's commentary. So in other words, the inspired translation of the Bible, the way the LDS Church explains to you and me what the Joseph Smith translation is, the reality is it is something different. And it's not what the church or Joseph Smith claims it to be. So we can debate whether some of the Joseph Smith translation is coming from the gift and power of God and outside of himself. But what has to happen is we're going to have to start admitting that much of what Joseph Smith is doing in translation is directly borrowing from other sources and that the stories we've been told about what these uh, productions are, those don't hold up. We have inaccurately portrayed these translations as something that they are not. So now we have the Joseph Smith translation where rather than fully being some kind of ancient restoration or restoration of ancient concepts, we have to acknowledge that at least in a large extent, it is a simple plagiarism from a contemporary source. And so now we've gotten through the Kinderhook plates, not what Joseph Smith told us they were, the Book of Abraham, not what Joseph Smith or the church told us they were, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, not what Joseph Smith or the church told us they were. And now we're back to the book of Moses. And so in 1831, Joseph Smith begins working on looking at the early parts of Genesis and parts of the Bible early on in the Old Testament. And he specifically pins down working on the story of Moses. 
Again, the idea is that Joseph is restoring to us parts of the story of Moses that were lost and are not in our current understanding of the Bible. But here's the trouble. That in the book of Moses, if you look, if you read the book of Moses, and then contrast that with the New Testament, you're going to find that once again, Joseph Smith does some direct borrowing and plagiarism. Let me read to you from a uh, some scholarly uh, concepts on the book of Moses and where the content comes from. And so I'll just read this verbatim and then we can talk about it. When discussing, this is their, this is their writing, this is the scholarship. When discussing sources, I think it's important to point out that the highly loaded term plagiarism should only be used in certain settings. It's not enough for one to find that a text used in an earlier source and then label the circumstances of the composition plagiarism. And I think that's important. So I'm stopping here for a second. I think it's important. Not in every instance when we borrow from another source and then use it in our source is that plagiarism. And, and I'll give an easy example, which is there are writers in the Old Testament, Malachi, Isaiah, uh, Hosea, there are others where it's obvious that one author has gotten some material from the other and seems to be using their wording essentially verbatim. As long as you, the reader, understand that going in and that the author is perfectly comfortable with you knowing and, and, and doesn't mind you knowing that he has used wording from someone else's writings, I don't think it's fair to call that plagiarism. And in today's modern world, we have ways in which we, we have legal definitions, uh, legal standards by which we are to tell the readership of anything we write that we are using other sources directly as part of our material. But if the borrowing is done secretly and is conveyed to the reader as being something other than this source that was borrowed from, at that point you do have plagiarism. Now, back to the scholarship. There have been, sorry, there have to be certain claims made by the text or its authors for the designation to fit. Talking about the word plagiarism. As far as the book of Moses is concerned, the term does not fit at all. Not only is it made obvious for the intended reader that these are biblical characters, the book of Moses is an explicit revision of the Genesis text. It still remains the Bible, but in altered form. It is meant to be an authoritative correction of the prior text, and therefore it does not hide its source at all. The only exception of this is in the book of Moses' use of New Testament material. Now, again, this is the scholar. Rather than quoting from this material and attributing its authorship to himself, the author of Moses 1 has used a familiar text structure, example Matthew 4, not its content, to represent the figure of Moses in the creation accounts of Genesis. In the context of the book of Moses, it is advised that the term plagiarism not be used. 
which should be obvious to the reader when they understand the original function of the Book of Moses' material. So in layman's terms, what he's saying is that the author of the Book of Moses, and you can make that Joseph Smith, you can make that God, whoever the author is, the author is definitely using the structures from the New Testament to incorporate those into the Book of Moses but that we ought to be careful about calling such plagiarism. Now, let's go into the specific uses of the New Testament and other sources here in the book of Moses. Moses chapter 1 is dependent on the structure and content of Matthew chapter 4. In its uh, construction of the temptation of Moses, transforming Moses into a messianic figure in the same way that the author of Matthew transforms Jesus into a new Moses. Moses 1 agrees with Matthew chapter 4 against the temptation of Jesus found in Luke chapter 4. This is a critical observation for understanding not only Moses chapter 1, but in formulating one's approach to interpreting it. And there are, there are several of these connections. I, I want to share just a few of these. The idea of up unto an exceedingly high mountain... Uh, Moses 1, 12, which is comparable to Matthew 4, 9, uh, 15, 9, Mark 7, 7, Luke 4, 7. Satan says, worship me. You have uh, Moses 1, 15, comparable to Matthew 4, 9, Luke 4, 7. Worship God for him only shalt thou serve. Moses 1, 17, Matthew 4, 9, and worship me. Moses 1, 18, comparable to Matthew 4, 9, depart hence, Satan. Moses 1.19, Matthew 4.9, worship me. So what you can grasp is that the author of Moses chapter 1 is deeply familiar with Matthew. And, and I get it. If you're an Orthodox believing member, you're going to say like, why, wouldn't these, why is it so odd that these stories occur in the same pattern, the same structure? The reality is that if you understand biblical scholarship, if you understand how we figure these kinds of things out of who's borrowing from who, it becomes obvious that the likelihood of these two works both being ancient and disconnected from each other, but having the same structure is so statistically, uh, to the point where it's astronomically implausible. And that the only way this really makes sense is if the author of Moses 1 is so familiar with Matthew that they are using the same kind of story structure to convey Moses' story. The trouble in Mormonism is that Matthew is a more recent document. So if Joseph, if, if uh, Moses is the author or somebody contemporary to Moses is the author, it makes zero sense that they would have access to and understand Matthew because it's written after. But if the author is a contemporary source to Joseph or Joseph Smith himself, then it makes perfect sense to utilize uh, Matthew and to use that structure because you would be aware of it and know it. Um, we have to establish something here as well. In the 
inspired translation of the Bible, the previous example that we talked about, as well as here in the book of Moses, we need to note that Joseph Smith is directly borrowing from other sources and using them. We've already established that, but here's the crux. The scribes, the witnesses, the people who tell us any information about these two translations, the book of Moses and the uh, inspired translation of the Bible, nobody informs us, the reader, or of, of either the translation or of other journal entries and witness accounts of these productions, nobody tells us that outside sources are being used. In other words, in the Joseph Smith translation, Joseph Smith is using Clark's commentary. He's directly using it. Now, is it in the room or not? We don't know. There's a couple of options. One is that the, the scribes of this translation and the witnesses of this translation are um, complicit with Joseph Smith in not in being aware that these things are used, but not seeing a reason to inform the general public. It's also possible that they are aware of these uh, contemporary sources being used, but have reason to not share these ish, this, uh, this borrowing, this direct borrowing with the general public. The other option is that Joseph Smith has a photographic memory. He can go read documents. He can store those words away in his brain. He's working at some genius level, which I am happy to argue that, that Joseph Smith was a genius, one of those rare geniuses that comes along every couple of hundred years, but that Joseph had a photographic memory and was able to incorporate these concepts into his translation without the scribes or witnesses knowing that's what he's doing. But you have to pick something like those examples I gave because the scribes aren't sharing anything, and we know for a fact that those things are used and utilized. This becomes important when we get to the Book of Mormon, and I'll explain why. But we need to note, it is an important mark here in this episode, that we make note that Joseph Smith, while using outside sources to construct these translations, that on the other side of the coin, the witnesses and scribes for these translations never share that Joseph is doing such a thing. Now, the book of Moses, again, um, has direct quoting from the New Testament, as well as using the structure, the pattern, the concepts in the same order that the New Testament uses. Uh, the scholar here says the description of the creation of Genesis is placed in the first person singular in the voice of God. It is assumed that Moses is the author of uh, the Pentateuch, and several editions are included throughout the block. The grammatical alterations and the additions to the text of Genesis break the natural flow of several verses, which can be seen particularly in the earliest Book of Moses manuscripts. It becomes apparent upon closer inspection that these variants are dependent on the English of the King James Version. The sections of Moses 6 uh, through 8 that do not utilize the text of Genesis are sprinkled with quotations, allusions, and echoes 
of various books throughout the King James Version with a focus on the New Testament Gospels. So that concludes what I wanted to share about the book of Moses. But again, what we have been taught that the book of Moses is, that is not the kind of translation that is actually happening. So now we've established such with the Kinderhook plates, the book of Abraham, the inspired translation of the Bible, and now the book of Moses. What we are left with is the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon is the, is the, the, the keystone as we talk about it, the keystone of Mormonism. Like if it falls, everything falls, right? And so um, I just got a rumor yesterday, a person on Facebook messaged me. Now, I don't know that I put much stock into this, but I share it because it connects some dots to this, what I'm, what I'm sharing here. Someone messaged me on Facebook yesterday and said, Hey, Bill, I've got a source. And my source is aware of a meeting that took place between the First Presidency and the Public uh, Relations Department of the Church, as well as an outside public relations company. And what the substance of that meeting was, is they're requesting a way in which over a 10-year period, to make space for a non-historical approach to the Book of Mormon. Now, I'll believe it when I see it, but in light of what we're talking about today, and as we dive into the Book of Mormon itself, I hope you see the importance. Like, I don't think the church can do it in the next 10 years, 20 years, or even 30 years, but I do think such an approach is necessary in the long-term vision of the church. So while I don't expect it to happen in the next decade, and I would be surprised if it did, I also recognize that at some point I really do think such is going to happen. So let's dive into the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith tells the public the story of an angel guarding plates. And Joseph Smith uh, is visited by this angel in 1823 and goes to the hill. 1824 goes to the hill. 1825 goes to the hill. 1826 goes to the hill. 1827 gets the plates in 1827 and then produces a translation over the next three years. And in 1830, the Book of Mormon is published. I established that timeline because if we make space for Joseph Smith to be the author of Mormonism, and we recognize that Joseph Smith is a genius at borrowing from other sources in order to create a translation production. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. It is important to understand that Joseph Smith is not creating the Book of Mormon in a few months or at least he has space and time to not have been forced to have done it over the course of a few weeks or months, but instead has 1823 to 1830 to be running the story through his head, to be thinking about these concepts, to be looking for material in a multitude of places to use. So we end up with the Book of Mormon, and when we read it, let's be honest, 
Joseph's a genius. If we grant that this is a fictional production by Joseph Smith, through his direct borrowing of multiple sources, let's at least acknowledge that the man was a genius at taking all of these concepts and tying them together. Grant Palmer, who wrote an insider's view of Mormonism, um, Mormon or uh, insider's view of Mormon origins. When you read Grant Palmer's book, he does a beautiful job of explaining what's in the Book of Mormon and the various places contemporary to Joseph or available to Joseph in which he could have gotten those concepts, such as his King James Version of the Bible, the dreams of his father, the sermons of the ministers that were local to his area, um, places that he would have visited uh, when him and his family would have gone into the city, uh, the ideas of uh, his relationship with his parents and his siblings and where he fell in order to that, so his own life experience, and recognizing that Joseph does a brilliant job of tying all those things together in a way that keeps the geography consistent, keeps the dating systems consistent, keeps the storylines, the people's names, the places' names, the, the, just a beautiful job of consistency. And, and to me, that's the miracle of the Book of Mormon, is the consistency of it. Because I think the concepts that are in it can be explained, at least most of them. But to take theology from one source, the life experience from yourself, the, the dreams of your father, the text of the King James Ver to tie it all together is, a, is nothing short of miraculous. And I don't necessarily mean miraculous in some uh, God-given way, but miraculous in the same way that Beethoven is a deaf man, and yet he's writing some of the most beautiful music ever created. But what we have to deal with is the fact that we have these other examples we shared, the Kinderhook Plates, the Book of Abraham, the Bible-inspired uh, translation, the Book of Moses, and we now have shown with those four that whatever Joseph Smith and the church claimed was happening, that's not what was happening. So now I ask you, what's the odds that what the Joseph Smith and the church have claimed is happening with the Book of Mormon is what is happening? And if we simply go off rationale and logic, we understand that the odds are slim. And for those of us who are just holding on with a death grip that the Book of Mormon is an ancient text, we're going to have to deal with the modern scholarship on it. Let me give one example. Richard Bushman, in an interview that I had with him a couple of years ago on Mormon Discussion Podcast, Richard Bushman said this, he says, quote, I think right now the Book of Mormon is a puzzle for us. Even for people who believe it in every detail, it's a puzzle. To begin with, we've got the puzzle of translation. Translating the book without the plates even in sight, wrapped up in a cloth on the table, it's not something that comes right off the pages. The characters on the plates. So we don't know how that works. And then there's the fact that there's phrasing everywhere, long phrases, that if you Google them, you'll find them in 19th century writings. The theology of the Book of Mormon is very much 19th century theology. 
and it reads like 19th century understanding of the Hebrew Bible as an Old Testament that is, it has Christ in it, the way Protestants saw Christ everywhere in the Old Testament. Now that's Bushman in a audio interview, so I apologize for the the the, gra- the grammar, the use of grammar, and the way he phrases that wording, but you get the gist. The Book of Mormon contains too much 19th century material for us to be comfortable assuming that it is a holy ancient text. And I don't mean holy as in sacred, I mean holy as complete. And so if we're going to permit that the Book of Mormon is in some way not entirely an ancient text, for instance, uh, Blake Osler, who is an LDS, uh, a theologian of sorts, uh, proposes that it's a mixture of both ancient as well as Joseph imposing his own contemporary uh, ideas in his own self into the text. Now, that's a strange way to see it. Here would be my argument. Once we look at each of these works, once we see what, what it means for Joseph to be translating, and once we recognize that the Book of Mormon is also problematic, is there any chance we could just as a community be open to the fact that Joseph is giving us midrash, that Joseph is giving us pseudopigrapha, that while these things contain truth, moral truth, uh, truth about life and the way in which we should treat others and live in the world, while it adds value of that kind, could we make a space that each of these productions were fiction, that each of these productions, while containing truth, are not based on real people who lived anciently, but rather that Joseph was doing his best to do what all writers of sacred text have done, which is to connect us to the divine by giving us myth as a literal story so that we too can see that there are ways in which to reach out and practically touch God. And once we see that, and if we as an institution can make room for that, then suddenly folks who have left might be able to come back, seeing this community still has value, even if based on sacred myth. It's my hope today that as you went through this episode, and as you considered the translation works of Joseph Smith. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. That you might realize that translation doesn't mean what you thought it did. And that something else is going on. And once you make space for that, then you can maybe take another step and see that treating others like shit because of a myth that while being sacred is fiction, that such is intolerable. May the Lord warm your shoulders. May each of us treat others as Christ, whether fiction or not, would have us treat others. In the name of Jesus Christ, 